Welcome to Shared Instance, a podcast on iOS development by three iOS developers in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm Sam Corder. I'm Alex Argo. And I'm Alex Robinson. This is episode 87. All right, guys, welcome back from our uh, American holiday break, the first one of the year, or the second to last one of the year, I guess we should say. (laughs) (laughs) Just the way we do our years, just in the Western world, is always kind of weird. Yeah, other cultures, they'll have first of the year as like the first day of spring. Makes a lot of sense to me, right? So this is our second to last (laughs) break. (laughs) And... uh, we're probably going to take another holiday break towards the end of the year. Maybe get another two or three episodes out after this one. Well, one or two after this one. We may just be sporadic. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> yeah. But no matter what, we will be back in full force and regularity in January, which is sad to say for other podcasts, other iOS podcasts these days that are calling it quits. You know, we've got iOS the long time iOS podcast. They published their last episode recently. And then you got Mobile Couch from our friends down under. And they are putting out their last episode in February, I believe. So it's really, really sad to see the community diminish like that. But we're here, at least for now. And we're going to go away for a little bit, but we'll be back, promise. Our, our podcast position has not been eliminated, unlike the Mac Automation product manager position that Apple has been, though. Yeah. But didn't you say that Apple is still committed to the Apple script and automation and whatnot? Well, it's, it's hard to say exactly how committed they are to what. Uh, but, yeah, I guess maybe it was a week or two ago, there was some, some posts on the social media about uh, Sal Segoyan, who... It seems like he was a really cool guy uh, who is the Mac automation czar, product manager, whatever you want to call it at Apple. And it sounds like, sounds like his position was eliminated and there is this uproar kind of like, you know, what does this mean for Apple script and all the, all the stuff that happens with automation um, at Apple, which apparently includes all kinds of random things like the command line and Ruby and... All that kind of stuff. Hmm. So it's not just Apple Script, which I've never written a line of in my life. It's more than more than that, huh? Well, that's what he was in charge of. Who knows, like what's distributed where? But I guess after the uproar, um, Craig Federighi did an interview with someone, and he basically said, you know, we're still going to support Apple Script and automation stuff. But yeah, it's hard to say what exactly, you know, the importance of that stuff will be going forward did you guys have any other thoughts on this one well they haven't really talked too much about anything new in automation in the last few releases of os 10 but this is definitely falling into this trend lately of apple eliminating product lines or or groups to refocus resources on other projects so they recently uh, exited the display business uh, letting LG kind of take that over. And then uh, within the last couple of weeks, they announced that they're exiting the wireless router business as well. Uh, which, you know, I think I think for the most part, their routers, the time capsule and uh, airport. 
devices were selling reasonably well, or at least seemed to be well liked. But I th- I think they were always liked for their reliability, but and simplicity. Like it's yeah, and simplicity. It's it's been a long time since they were like on the cutting edge of oh yeah of wireless technology though. Oh, they've definitely fallen by the wayside there. Yeah. Well, I don't know if anybody's really cutting edge. It feels like all the devices out there kind of fall short. Yeah. Well, but... I mean, there's there's new standards coming out, like 802.11, like more than gigabit. I don't even know what it's called. And the <laughs> MU, the MO, mesh. yeah, all the mesh yeah. stuff. Um, so there's all kinds of new stuff that's happening. It seems like mesh mesh network routers are kind of the latest thing, like the Eero and yeah. I think Netgear has a bunch and the Google's Google, got that one. The new Google Wi Fi devices that should be shipping soon or available soon. Should be. <laughs> so there's yeah, there's new stuff that's happening there, but when you don't update stuff in a couple years, you're kind of slowly exiting the business anyways i guess yeah but it you know with the router side of the business they said they you know wanted to move the resources to focus on other products Uh, so you know theoretically apple's doubling down on you know maybe a generation or two out of the iphone or or maybe it's a whole new product line but Definitely, they're. It's kind of back when Steve Jobs kind of decided that they should focus on just like four major product lines. Uh, so it almost seems like they're they kind of dipped their toes in a whole bunch of different markets, and now they're kind of coming back and focusing on a smaller set. Maybe you know, I think that would be a good thing for Apple. Yeah, the bummer is the bummer is the last time they did that. Like all of those four things got really good and it seems like all people are doing lately is complaining about all the things that are still left so i i think there's also this this issue that the vast majority of their revenue comes from the iphone product line and it's just you know they sell hundreds of millions of those devices and it's a relatively large market and people replace them every year or two it's easy for them to feel like that's an area that they focus on because that's where the money is and that's where the opportunity is. But there's these other great products like the Mac uh, that maybe don't get as much attention. You know what they still sell, though? The iPod. <laughs> yeah, uh, they still yeah. sell the iPod. There's but still that... market for that, I suppose. At this point... They did update it a while back, but it's been a while now again. So it's probably due, but it's only got the iPhone 6 chip in it, I believe. Yeah, I think honestly, it was at least 2015. Yeah, I don't think they did anything this year, but I think they updated it in 2015. There may be a Nano still. I, I'm not sure. <laughs> I think so. And it's crazy. They still sell one, yeah. It's and a in- shuffle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, they are, they're cutting certain product lines, but they are also getting into new markets like with the Apple watch, but they also have the headphone business with, uh, beats, but also their Apple branded headphones. And 
I mean, they, they still have a fairly diverse product line. Yeah, well, it seems like, you know, when the Mac was their big moneymaker, all of these extraneous uh, markets that they were in were all kind of like there to support the Mac. Like, they pushed Wi-Fi forward with Macs, and they had their routers, and, I mean, even further back, they had printers and stuff like that that they pushed forward with Apple printers. and Desktop printing was kind of the the niche market for Macs early on, so it, it definitely made sense at the time. But I, I guess at some point you just got to say, all right, you know, the important thing is the iPhone. So it's all of the surrounding stuff to that where you go into, you know, other businesses that are kind of close to it. And I guess, you know, computer displays aren't that important to that, which I guess that makes sense. Yeah. And at the same time, they're also growing their service based business with things like iTunes and um, Apple Music, and those are becoming larger and larger parts of their their revenue as well. I don't know how it compares to something like the Mac line, but it's definitely an area that they're growing. I don't think Apple breaks that out on their balance sheets yet, do they? I know the watch is still under like the other category for sources of revenue. You have the Mac and the iPhone line and everything like that. I mean, I, I think between the App Store, iTunes, Apple Music, you know, you're probably looking at oh, well over a billion dollars, but that may, I, I don't know what their annual revenue is, but that may still not be enough to require it to be broken out. You know, speaking of Apple's services like iCloud, uh, did you guys get the uh, the iCloud? Cal spam over the uh, Black Friday weekend? Oh, I got tons of it. Well, three of them, I guess. See, somehow I avoided this, but I heard all the people complaining for sure. So what is the deal with that stuff? So there's no <laughs> spam filtering in iCal. And so these spammers have figured this out, or iCalendar for iCloud. And people have figured this out, and they've just been sending calendar invites that say like Black Friday sale on Ray-Bans and all this garbage. And if you delete the message, then it sends a message back to, well, if you delete the appointment, it sends a message back to the sender saying, so-and-so declined this. Hell yeah, we're going to send some more email to them. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it it pretty much shows up right away after that, (laughs) The, the next invite. And there's no way to, by default, iCal invites aren't sent as an email. Uh, they're pushed. So you can't just delete the email or ignore it. There's no ignore button on the invites. Uh, so it's just accept and decline. Uh, so a few people came up with a workaround where you can create a separate calendar, move the invites to the new calendar, then delete the whole calendar. Uh, which works reasonably well. And then if you go to the iCloud.com website, you can change your settings uh, to force the invites to come in through email. So then you can just delete the email. But, but I, think you have to, I, I think you have to go to that website on a laptop, not your phone, because the, yeah, the options right. on the phone are very limited and you don't get 
into the actual apps themselves on in the web interface on the phone. And that's where you have to go into. You have to go into calendar in iCloud on iCloud.com and then click on the little gear and hit the advanced tab. So that's, that's a little PSA. Yeah. And I forwarded a couple of the invites to abuse at iCloud.com, which is the uh, email address for spam. So hopefully Apple's heard enough noise about this by now that it, it'll be a, a hole in their security that they fix. <laughs> yeah it, it's it's a little surprising that such a hole like that exists and that it's taken so long to be exploited as well yeah yeah and it, you know looking at the invite it looks like they just generated a bunch of uh, email addresses iCloud email addresses to send the invites to yeah, it's it's a bit puzzling. Definitely annoying for a lot of people. Somebody was probably using Apple Script automation and then <laughs> figure this out. Ha ha. <laughs> Good they fired that guy. <laughs> <laughs> I'll show them. <laughs> See, I didn't get any of this spam and I'm I just use my uh Google uh, accounts for my calendar and mail. So, it seems like that's one way to avoid the issue as well. Yeah, if you don't use the uh, your iCloud account for calendaring, then then you won't see it. Uh, but definitely, should, yeah. lots of people out there did. I did think it was somehow default or recommended at some point because I I never used to. And at one point when I was setting up a phone, I don't even remember how long ago, but I set one. I set it up. I'm not sure when I. I'm not sure exactly when that happened. When well, I if you that. have an iCloud account, you probably have have a calendar and email, but I guess I don't have mine turned on anywhere. I just use all Google stuff. Oh. So you might you might have the... I have some spam probably that I don't see. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. You're missing out on those great sales. <laughs> Man. <laughs> I think there's uh, Ray-Bans and <laughs> maybe Uggs or something. I'm not sure. What else? Need me some Uggs. <laughs> Yeah. Wait for the MacPaw people to start sending out spams like that. $10. Get your setup subscription. Yeah, so yeah, this, this is interesting right. workaround to the the lackluster Mac App Store is uh MacPaw has announced plans to provide an alternative App Store. Now, I like this. It's kind of a all-you-can-eat for $10 a month in of a set of curated apps. Yeah, they kind of refer to it as Netflix-style pricing. So you use the apps that you want, and they've got a pretty slick interface for getting access to the apps. And they have some complex algorithm to measure usage in order to compensate the developers. I wonder if these apps are sandboxed or not. I suspect not. Um, I mean, they you probably can't sandbox them, and it's probably better if you do. Like, even if you have a non-Mac... Um, 
a non-Mac App Store app, you can still sandbox it, and I think that's probably best practice if you can, but if there's things that need to, you know, that your app needs to do to be useful, then I, I'm pretty sure that they don't need to, to be sandboxed. Hmm. And this is, this is definitely a curated list of apps. Macball has a decent number of their own apps that are high quality, um, but they're getting other developers as well. And, and I think the idea is all the apps will be high quality apps and it'll be a limited number, at least to start. I would love to see some of the developer tools that I use or not necessarily completely developer focused tools, but get paint code in there and, and sketch and So they don't have a date announced yet or when this will be available, but they have a sign-up form to get notified. It definitely seems intriguing, and it's a similar kind of 70-30 split uh, for the developer, but then 20% of the 30% that they keep, I believe, uh, they're going to use to provide incentives to developers to grow the community of users. So it's kind of like a referral bonus type of thing. You get people to sign up, you get more money back. Hmm. Definitely sounds intriguing. Yeah, yeah and I think uh, if you want more information that we don't have yet, uh, the Release Notes podcast uh, did an interview with the founder of MacPaw, and then they also did another episode where they uh, kind of talked about their thoughts on it as well. So check that out. We'll put that in the release notes. Um, and and maybe we'll get some more info and talk about it here later on when we when we know more stuff. Yeah, definitely. Now, I know we've talked about uh, programmatic UI versus interface builder in the past, and that definitely gets into a bit of a religious war. Uh but some of the folks at Ray's Labs created an interesting utility that'll take a nib and turn that into code, like basically taking all the layout code and putting it into a load view method. Uh, the utility is called eject. So people who started out with nibs and want to move over to just programmatic user interfaces have an interesting option here to, to move over. They want to eject themselves from uh, interface builder? Is that how it works? Yeah, yeah. And, and the project definitely seems to be in its early stages. Uh, I don't believe that it supports storyboards or trait collections yet, uh, but theoretically that's something that could be added in the future. Yeah, my initial thought was like, it seems like storyboards. You just have more than one of the things that are in zibs. It can't be that hard, right? And then I think, uh, Alex, you were starting to point out all the other random things that storyboards give you. So I can see how it might not be straightforward to support storyboards. But storyboards are on the are on the roadmap, or at least things they're thinking about. So might see that in the future. I'm not sure how common the use cases of somebody who's gone down the path of building things in Interface Builder and then realizes they don't like Interface Builder, so they 
when I eject. Uh, but clearly, clearly, at least one person at Ray's Labs felt that way. So, well, it's kind of the the paint code for interface builder. Yeah, I suppose you could like quickly prototype with interface builder and then use this to turn it into code. Hmm. I don't know. I it's like somehow going backwards. Maybe it's like the the Brexit of utilities. <laughs> That's one way you could go with it. <laughs> yep. Uh... All right. Kill Probably another one. another uh, important thing to figure out too is nibs or zibs. <laughs> well, what do you? Alex, clearly you you call them zibs. I think a lot of people yep. still call them nibs, carried over from the before they were XML format. Or they were NIB instead of ZIB. Yeah, I uh, still call them nibs, even though I've never actually even programmed with a nib. You know, if you want to call them a, a nib... You know, it's like someone who talks about GIFs, you know? It's the same thing. Oh, no. <laughs> you yeah. got GIFs, and you got GIFs, and you got nibs, and you got zibs. It's all the same thing. <laughs> I think we might get some feedback on this one. <laughs> <laughs> kind of curious where people fall on that. I Yeah, I may be I in the wrong nibs. here. We'll <laughs> I think that's I go- just... I s- yeah, I say nibs. If people call them <laughs> zibs, I don't care. It doesn't bother me. I know it what they're talking about. I'm sure I'm, I confuse people who are relatively new to inter- Xcode and Interface Builder when I call them nibs. Well, you just you just use storyboards, so you don't you don't have to deal with it that much. Just, I mean, that's true. At this point, right? Yeah, yeah that's true. I I don't. Uh, I occasionally will use a nib for a table cell interface to make it a little bit more reusable. Um, but 90% of the time I'm doing everything in code and then, you know, every now and then I'm on a project where I'm allowed to use storyboards and interface builder. So, um, but I don't really have a strong opinion either way. I'm on a project these days where I can't use storyboards and I miss them. Uh, When I first started on the project after... I want to say, you know, three or four years of using Interface Builder and then all of a sudden not having it. You know, I struggled with the rationale for that for quite a while. And now that I've been doing mostly programmatic user interface, I'm probably a little bit more comfortable doing that than using storyboards, especially with like things like auto layout. Like I feel like I can visualize auto layout better in code than I can in a storyboard. Oh man. It that seems weird, but that does seem really weird. It's like the matrix. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I run into constraint violations more often when I try and use storyboards uh, with auto layout than I, when I do it in code. Oh, constraint I, violations. Yeah. That's a normal thing no matter what. Yeah. Even if yeah. even if you have something perfectly constrained, sometimes 
say like table view cells, when interface builder is DQing that, it decides to give it a height of like zero or one, and you'll get constraint violations because a lot of times your views actually want to have a height. And so then you get those and then the, the cell magically expands to the correct height and then everything's fine. Yeah, there's kind of like a multi-pass scenario there too where you'll get the constraint violations the first pass and then the second pass it's fine because it realized, oh, I, I'm bigger than I, yeah. I thought I was or you know whatever it is. I still find it odd that something as simple as a UI scroll view in a storyboard in a with auto layout in a storyboard is as complicated as it is. It's definitely easier than it used to be. It used to be you couldn't do it without uh, having a step or two in code. Now, if you follow this six-step um, approach, you can you can <laughs> do scroll views in with auto layout in Interface Builder without having warnings or errors, but it's like halfway of it's a, hard to remember everything you have a, to do that's half of a 12-step program yeah well i think it used to be 12 steps so it's, it's, <laughs> it's been cut back to six now <laughs> it's not yeah. that much more productive but i feel like it should be be like you know go to product embed in scroll view and or editor whatever the menu option is but it should be that easy and it should just figure it out for you I, and then, then God forbid you have to put a stack view in there. Yeah, yeah, add stack views in. Yeah, it's it gets messy, and then interface builder sometimes messy. goes all crazy. And well, it's I've had it stack views inside of scroll views, and then it thinks like the the whole view should be ten thousand pixels wide and tall. Try scrolling that in interface builder. And I've done, I've done stack views and scroll views in code, and that worked reasonably well the first time. A um, little harder to do in Interface Builder, in my opinion. Yeah, well, I would worry that I'm not getting all the constraints that I need, and that I have to then parse through that mountain of console output that. Yeah. Sierra outputs and you try to figure th- out whether I'm, my constraints are not, my scroll view is not properly constrained or not. You can use but, something like Reveal to, to help out a little bit. It can yeah. do some nice filtering and um, you can use that on device as well. I find the visual debugger will lie to you in certain circumstances. <laughs> I don't know if reveals better or or more accurate, but sometimes the visual debugger will show the view in the right place, but on screen, on the actual screen, it, it's in the wrong place. So yeah, I've seen that kind of thing. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen a lot, but it, I've definitely run into that a few times. Yeah. Well, but right. yeah, if you are doing programmatic layout. A visual debugger like Reveal or what's built into Xcode is a must-have. Does it? Yeah, I guess I never thought of that because I'd always just like look at stuff in 
interface builder and kind of get the gist of things. Yeah. Well, usually for me, it's get the UI as close to how it should look in interface builder and then apply any kind of tweaks I need to and say view did load, which definitely happens a lot, especially with theming and coloring and of buttons or whatever. There's always that programmatic layer. I think you just can't get away from unless you're doing a vanilla app. Which, you know, lots of apps start out that way, but rarely do they end that way. You know, usually even the simplest idea idea becomes more complicated with time. Mm -hmm. Or a a designer gets a hold of it (laughs) and just laughs at you and gives you the real design. Feedback from the customers. Yeah, it's like, I know it was intended to do this one thing, but we decided we also need to do these three other things. And can you just kind of add that to it? And it's like, well, mm-hmm. <laughs> not really designed for that. And then it becomes this negotiation and, you know, sometimes yeah. redesign. Can you put an onboarding message on here? My friend found this confusing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I found this onboarding app. message confusing. <laughs> Can you give me an onboarding message for my onboarding message? <laughs> you laugh. <laughs> Let's see. One last thing. Um, it's something we've, you know, for us cable cutters, there's been some some new options coming out recently. Uh, PlayStation View is now available for. Apple TV, uh, which kind of gives you access to a bunch of channel lineups, different tiered prices. So similar to the you know cable television, but without the cable and without having the rent hardware and uh, no contract. Uh, and then today, uh, the day that we're recording, AT and T announced their Direct TV Now offering, which is fairly comparable to PlayStation View. Uh, one interesting thing about it um, is that you can add on HBO for only $5, which is $10 cheaper than pretty much any of the other uh, channels for or uh, subscription services that offer HBO add-ons. Can I get AMC? Or do yes. I have to start this? Yes. Yeah, so okay. Both of those services, I believe, have AMC. The DirecTV Now lineup, uh, it's been hinted at, but it, it's likely to be fairly comparable to the PlayStation View. Uh, CBS one- is one of the big holdouts. They, you know, CBS being one of the bigger, if not biggest, uh, broadcast stations. They've got their own app, their own service, and... Uh, they've been uh, a more challenging negotiation for most of these providers. Yeah, right now I have a Sling, uh, which is similar to both of these. Um, and my biggest issue with, with it is the interface is just horrible. So uh, I really want to check out both of both of these when they're available for free. Um one kind of interesting thing about DirecTV now, actually, there's a couple interesting things. They're branding it as DirecTV, um, 
But like Alex mentioned, there is no CBS, uh, which is kind of a big deal. But the other big thing that DirecTV is known for is having uh, NFL Sunday Ticket. And you can't get that on uh, DirecTV now. And even though it has the uh, the broadcast channels like Fox that, that normally carry NFL, uh, that will not be available on mobile. Um, which think, seems like a weird omission. I think both of the services have a sports package as well, but I don't know what that includes. I mean, I know it includes probably like 10 different ESPN channels, but I don't Beyond that, I, I don't know what it offers, but... Yeah, but the also, NFL is really weird with their rights. It's horrible. <laughs> kind of along the same lines, there's also an issue if a channel, a broadcast channel, local affiliate to where you live is not owned by the network, then they won't provide that channel. But it, if the... If it is owned by the network, then you do get it. So, like, channels may vary by location. Hmm. Uh, I guess they just don't want to have to deal with trying to get all those contracts in line. Yeah, it gets complicated. I mean, you know, they're still trying to get CBS, and uh, DirecTV now doesn't have Showtime, which is odd because I think Showtime's available on pretty much all the other services as an add-on. But uh, and AT and T also has a few ex- other existing services like AT and T Universe and uh, the regular DirecTV service. They have something called like Freeview or something now that's like for teens as well. And the other weird thing about DirecTV now is that if you have AT and T for your wireless, then uh, you can stream as much as you want without uh, going against your bandwidth limits. Um, yeah. I think maybe you were thinking of full screen. Full screen, yeah, it sounds right. So I have I have AT&T wireless, but so that makes me kind of intrigued by that. But I'm a net neutrality fan, so I, I would feel torn about uh, getting a service to take advantage of that when I think it shouldn't be a thing that companies can do. <laughs> I don't know. What do you guys think about the metered or the unmetered streaming for... DirecTV. Is that intriguing to you guys at all, or you don't have AT&T, so it doesn't matter? I have I AT&T. Have... I don't, so I'm out of this conversation. I never come anywhere close to my data, and it's not like I'm going to be watching TV um, you know, while I'm sitting at the doctor's office or something, but you know, I will take the iPad on vacation and watch, watch a show on the iPad as opposed to like, through Netflix or something as opposed to uh, watching it on the uh, TV in the in the hotel. And a lot of that's just the convenience of having access to not only what's currently live, but uh, previous shows as well, which, you know, both of these services, I think, have some level of access to previous episodes, similar to Hulu, where they have a bit of a rolling window of pre- previous episodes. Yeah, one thing PlayStation View has that I DirecTV now does not have right now is like a DVR where you can tell it, I want to record these shows, and it'll have like the cloud recording available to you. Um, but that's not something that DirecTV now has yet. 
And I don't know if that's available on the uh, Apple TV app or if that's only available on other devices. It's, you know, kind of going back to like confusing user interfaces. It's It's got that console, gaming console style user interface that, you know, with the volume of content of 100 plus different channels, both live and previous episodes, it's really hard to to really navigate. I really wish I knew what this truly intuitive user interface for TV that Steve Jobs had envisioned um, <laughs> uh, before he passed. I, f- I feel like there's some secret solution out there that, that he had that we just haven't seen yet. Because I don't think Apple TV's quite nailed it yet either. No, definitely not. Yeah, so I think I'm in your boat, though, Alex. I'm going to have to try out both of these and see which one of them makes sense. The great um, thing is they both have free trials and no contract. And supposedly the DirecTV Now, if you sign up for three months, you get a free Apple TV. So practically pays for itself if you need another Apple TV. Or if you want an Amazon Fire Stick, you can just pay for one month. Uh I think I know PlayStation View is a seven-day trial. I think DirecTV Now might be the same, um, but we'll know more later this week when the service actually launches, which it will already have when you guys hear this. So, yeah, and enjoy that. Um, but I think that's I think that's about all the time we have this week. So why don't you guys tell us where we can find you on the internet? And you can find me at AJ Robinson on Twitter. You can find me at Sam Quarter on Twitter. I'm at Alex Argo on Twitter, and the podcast is at Shared Insta. If you want to come join us in our Slack channel, uh, chat.sharedinstance.com to get an invite there. Come let us know that you never want to hear us talk about cord cutting again or whatever else you'd like to talk (laughs) about there. Um, And like Sam said, we'll be back sometime soon. Uh, We're not entirely sure when. It'll probably be in the next week or two for our next episode. But until then, talk to you guys later. See you. Later.